The uh, sermon text for today is from Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, every one of those commands uh, in those last verses we want to obey now in the power of your spirit. We want to come to you. We don't want to just come to our Bible. We don't want to just come to the point in the service uh, where the sermon happens. We want to come to you. What we are asking is that you will enable us to meet with you now. that we will not uh, be listening or preaching, hearing or speaking in such a way that you are an abstraction to us or distant from us. No, Lord, we want to come to you now. And we want, in the power of your Spirit, to take your yoke upon us, to to place ourselves as listeners, as hearers, and as preacher under your lordship and to put ourselves in the power of your spirit into your service, yoking ourselves to you, acknowledging that you are Lord and we are not. And we want to learn from you. We we do not want to be wise in our own eyes. And we long for your gentleness and your lowliness of heart to capture our hearts again this morning. And we want so much for the testimony of our hearts to be that, yes, indeed, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That's what we want our hearts to sing. So we're asking for great things. And in some who are here, that testimony would happen for the first time this morning as you draw them to yourself and save. And for others of us, we've sung the song many times before, and we want to sing it again this morning with gladness. So work in our lives as well. We pray in your name. Amen. In the beginning was the rest. And the rest was with God, and the rest was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things uh, find their rest only in Him, and apart from Him, rest cannot be found. And the rest became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man, no woman, no child has seen God at any time, but the only begotten rest who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, friends, when Jesus stands in the middle of this crowd in Galilee in the first century and makes the promises that he makes in verses 28 and 29, these promises of rest, I will give you rest, and you'll find, if you come to me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls, what he's doing is he is tapping in to the deep, simultaneously, he is tapping into the deepest vein in the Bible's teaching and the deepest vein of every single human heart, and he is holding himself out as the fulfillment of both. He is presenting himself. This is not a gentle Jesus. This is a Jesus who is claiming things that are so massive, so relevant, that he is going all the way to the back of the beginning of the Bible, and he is reaching all the way into this room and into the story of every single human heart here. And he is saying, I am the fulfillment of the deepest vein in the scriptures and the deepest vein in your heart. It's quite a set of claims. And this morning I want to think with you about this theme of rest. Jesus has promised rest under three headings. Our longing for rest, the meaning of rest, and our finding of rest. Why we want it, what it is, and how we receive it. So let's think first about our longing for rest. Think about verse 29. Rest for your souls. We know instantly, don't we? And maybe in a way that makes us kind of uncomfortable that he is not talking about a nap. He's not talking about sleep. He's not talking about a vacation. He's not talking about a season of ceasing from work. He's not even talking about retirement. No, what, what we know instantly, as soon as Jesus says this in verse 29, is that he has read our mail. He is holding an x-ray of our hearts. He knows us. He knows you, friend. And I find that so incredible. He is holding out something to us so big, so vast, so much better, so much more satisfying, something that we long for at such a deep level and never find anywhere else in this world that in many ways we have painted over the door and we have covered up the longing. It is astonishing to know that Jesus knows us. We have a deep restlessness that marks us as human beings. Deep unrest defines us. The deepest part of who we are is not at rest. Think about our age. I mean, this is really the story of our age. Deep restlessness is the story of our age. Our culture is capable of producing many things, 
Our culture is extremely competent in all kinds of ways in solving all kinds of problems. But of all the things our culture produces, of all the things our culture shows us, of all the things that our culture can teach us, what it cannot teach us is how to rest. There is a frenetic intensity to our culture that increasingly defines our culture, that increasingly harvests every organ of our culture, every organ of our age harvests it, whether it's the media, whether it's our entertainment, whether it's food and eating, whether it's how we think about the stuff we have that we need to live, whether it's we think about education or parenting or marriage or work, any of these things, there is a frenetic intensity to our age that often, if we're honest about it, feels tyrannical at points. That is always saying to us, more, stronger, smarter, thinner, younger, higher, richer, sexier, better, better, quicker. And what I want to know is, Are we ever good enough? Can we ever rest? Do we ever get to a point where we can be at peace, either with who we are in our identity or our dignity, whether we matter, or our security? Are we safe? I was in Boy Scouts. And uh, for a number of years, and I was a member of a troop that had some positively psychotic scoutmasters. And these guys loved to hike. And I grew up in California, so hiking meant Sierra Nevadas. And we had one uh, scoutmaster, I say that only in jest, he was actually really kind, I just didn't appreciate his kindness. Uh, We had a a scoutmaster named Warren Storkman. And this guy would hike 50 miles for breakfast, okay? And he would, we'd be, he'd be taking us through the Sierra Nevada. You know, it was like casting pearls before swine. I did not appreciate how beautiful and wonderful this was to be ground into the ground on these long hikes. I had no idea what a privilege that was. And we would always ask, Mr. Storkman, are we almost at the campsite? And he would always say this, it's just around the bend, boys. Just around the bend. And it never was. <laughs> you know, it's very much like our culture, although, you know, Scoutmaster Storkman was not lying to us. He was just trying to motivate us. But, you know, our culture, and you know this is true, our culture sets ladders in front of us. It says, climb this one, and you'll find rest. Climb the work ladder to a successful career, and you'll get rest there. Climb the achievement ladder, whether it's in school. This applies to young people as well as old people. Uh, Be really good at sports. Climb that ladder, and then you'll have rest. Uh, Marry the right right person, whatever that is, okay? Um, Climb that ladder, and then you'll find rest. Get a lot of money, and then you'll find rest. Be healthy, and then you'll find rest. Uh, Save enough for retirement, whatever that means, and, and then you'll find rest. Have grandchildren and then you'll find rest. Be married at all, and then you'll find rest. But you know what? Every single one of them is a false summit 
Because you get to the top of any one of those ladders and what you don't find is rest. What you find is at the top of every ladder you climb, you find the bottom rung of another one that you still have to climb. There is no rest in our age, friends. Something is very wrong when we have everything we want and don't have what we really want. When we have everything that we think we need and still don't have what we need. And so you say, well, Mike, is that just a 21st century deal? You know, uh, United States, uh, crazy internet connected, 24-7 culture thing. No, 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 it's not. And you can tell that it's not. It is the story of our age, but it's not only the story of our age. It's the story of every age because it's the story of every human heart. And we know that's true because of what Jesus says. What he promises in 20, verses 28 and 29, he's standing in the midst of a crowd in a totally unconnected age. Right? He's, he is addressing an audience and promising rest to an audience. It would be hard to imagine an audience more different from us, right? Pre-modern, first century, non-Western audience. And Jesus is standing up and promising rest for their souls to them because he knows that that's what they need. So it has nothing to do with the trappings of our age. There's a deeper disease, there's a deeper longing that isn't culture-bound that Jesus is tapping into. Yes, we see symptoms of it in our lives and in our culture, but friends, it goes much, much deeper, this restlessness. And it's been around much longer. It is a global pandemic. What is the meaning of our restlessness? Well, Let me try to approach it in a number of ways. Let me give you a thesis. And if you disagree with this thesis, you can register your disagreement with me at the door after the service. I think that this is true. We know that things aren't right. We know that we're not right. And we long to be made right. We know nature isn't right when we look at the world. It's not only beautiful, but it's dangerous, right? And we can't rest in it. We know people aren't right. Our relationships with them are this mixture. I mean, think about the power of relationships with other people. It is is so powerful, but that power doesn't only run in one way. It can be tremendously wonderful and tremendously harmful. And so we can't rest in other people. And we know that we're not right. Every single one of us uh, carries guilt. Every single one of us has a conscience that is tainted by shame. We know we're not who we should be. We definitely know we're not who we want to be. See, our hearts are telling us, and we're agreeing with them, that reality is out of tune. See, I think this is very interesting. I was having a conversation with a non-Christian friend a couple weeks ago, and he was complaining about the world. And I said, do you realize that what you're doing is you're no longer describing the world, you're critiquing the world. And I said, when you say that something is wrong, what you're saying implicitly is that there is a rightness out there 
that you're tapping into and that you're comparing the reality that you're living to. You're saying reality's out of tune. But to say that reality's out of tune assumes that there is an external standard out here of what being in tune is, and you're comparing your experience to that external standard. And the question is, where does that come from? Because in your worldview, there is no objective truth. See, I can't say that the piano's out of tune unless there is an objective reality outside of my brain and my head that says, here's what in tune is. And friends, when we experience restlessness, when we know the world's not right, and we know other people aren't right, and we know we're not right, you see what we're doing? Our hearts are saying, and there's great disappointment in those things, right? That there's a gap. Our hearts are acknowledging that there is a vast gap between the way life is as we live it and the way it should be, and we know it should be. And that shouldness, friends that produce the gap between the way things are and the way they should be, that's the power of our restlessness. C.S. Lewis has a very... Well, actually, let me back up and say, you know, my point then is this. Our restlessness proves two things. It proves that rest exists and two, that we were made for it. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity uses an example on a different subject, and he says, listen, we all experience hunger, okay? We all get hungry. And our experience of hunger, while it doesn't prove that I am definitely going to be fed, right? I can, I can be hungry and still starve. But the fact that I experience hunger does prove two things. Number one, it proves that such a thing as food exists. And two, it proves that I was made to live off of food. And I think exactly the same thing is true with respect to the restlessness of our hearts. You see, there is a longing that is unfulfilled by any experience in life. There's a, there's a deep longing in the human heart. And for some of us, you know, the older we grow, the more we push it down. Because the life that we live and the life that we wanted or the life that deep down in our hearts we knew, we know is the right kind of life, that that gap just feels to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that Jesus' promises in verses 28 and 29 are reminding us that we were made for a rest and that a rest exists. His promises prove that this is not some, that that longing of your heart, friends, is not some pipe dream. It's not some graffiti, some random graffiti that the Big Bang scrawled on your heart. No, it's it's a memory. It's an inescapable memory. It's the memory of a rest that you once had or could have had that men had, that women had, that children had. It's the memory of a rest. It's the echo of a music uh, so beautiful and so lovely and so compelling 
that, that, like Lewis says, is behind every great experience we have in our lives, and we only get hints of it, but it's, it's a beauty so powerful and so lovely that we dare not indulge in its memory too often or too deeply, because that power the power of that knowledge, that rest that we're comparing our restlessness to, the power of that beauty and that sweetness is so strong, it wields the power to break our hearts. With an unfulfilled longing, because it is utterly matchless, there is nothing in our experience ever satisfies that longing fully. You see, Jesus isn't irrelevant. Uh, If some of you think that the Bible has nothing to do with your life, that's because you don't read it. If you think that Jesus is some kind of two-dimensional cartoon figure from history, well, let the reader beware. He's not. He knows you. He's read your mail. And the wonderful uh, thing about it is he's read your mail in order to save you so that he could be uh, and present to you a perfect Savior. The story of our restlessness is the story of this deep-down beauty, this standard of rest that we have. And and, and it, the most natural thing in our lives to do is to compare every single thing in our experience to it. We don't often do it consciously. We compare the world to it. We compare others to it. We compare ourselves to it. The story of our restlessness, friends, is a story of a rest we once had and lost. It's exactly what St. Augustine says, right? You, speaking to God, on the first page of his book, The Confessions, he says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And Pascal, with the other reflection quote this morning from Pascal, he says exactly the same thing. He says, you know, there once was in man a deep happiness, and now there's basically this huge hole in the human heart that that we spend our lives trying to fill with things that are all powerless to fill it. But it can only be filled because it's a God-sized, shaped hole. It can only be filled by God. Your longing, your deep, unsatisfied longing in life, friends, there is only one place, only one person, only one relationship where it can ever be answered. That's with God. Through Jesus Christ. Think about the story of the Bible. Rest is a concept that's very, uh, is developed very early in the Bible. And of course, the first rester is God himself, isn't he? Remember, uh, he completes the work of creation in six days. And then uh, Genesis 2 says, says this. I'll let you look it up later. At the beginning of Genesis 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, including man and woman, 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, God doesn't rest because he's tired. He doesn't rest because creating the universe exhausted him. Psalm 33 says, With the breath of his mouth, he made all the starry hosts. That would be a lot. That would be really easy. It's not because God's tired that he rests. It's not because creation has exhausted him. It's because creation has satisfied him. It's because everything that he has made is as it should be. There is a shouldness to the universe because God created it that way. And there is an exact conformity between the way creation is and that shouldness. They are one. And so there is rest. All things are the way they, they are supposed to be. Uh, creation is the way it's supposed to be. Man's relationship to creation is the way it's supposed to be. Man's relationship to others is the way it's supposed to be. Man's relationship to himself is the way it's supposed to be. And most of all, man's relationship to God is as it should be on the seventh day. And we know the story. We know the fall comes. And we know that Adam and Eve rebelled against the rest of God. They rejected the rest of God. And in their rebellion, they introduced into creation, by God's decree, unrest and restlessness in every one of those relationships. So man's relationship to creation is is marked by restlessness. Man's relationship to man is marked by restlessness. The first marriage that ever was, was broken. The first relationship between people that ever was, was broken. Man's relationship to himself, now there's shame. Our personality is fractured. Again, if you think the Bible's not relevant, it's because you're not reading it. And most of all, man's relationship to God, broken, no more rest. And so, this is really the key. God is the meaning of our restlessness. That last relationship, man's relationship to God, is the key. That is the fountainhead of our restlessness. It's what Augustine says. You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, meaning that to the extent and to the degree, and as long as my heart is not resting in God, is not satisfied in God with him and me as his creature and me relating to him as my good and gracious king to the degree that I am not resting in God because that is the pinnacle of what a human being was made to be. And when I'm not resting in that reality, the core of who I am, the deepest part of who I am will not rest. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? You are not a random mass of molecules, my friend. You are not simply the accumulation of an endless number of chemical 
compounds. You are a person who was made by God to find your dignity, your identity, and your security in God. And when you look elsewhere for those things, you can't be at rest. And that is a kindness of God that he lets you not be at rest. That you never find a home where there isn't one. So God himself is the story of our restlessness. And what we're going to find as well as we look to the meaning of rest is that God is also the story of our rest. You know I love Tolkien. And I'm just kind of in this, this lather about Tolkien this fall. I started in August, and I didn't think it was going to burn through the whole territory of my life this fall like it has, but it has. And one of the things I read this of fall were, were Tolkien's letters, and uh, really there's so many gems in these letters. And, and the one that I just keep going back to is a letter he wrote to his son Christopher in 1944 when Christopher was serving with the RAF in South Africa. And Tolkien's updating Christopher on his, um, on his uh, uh, progress in The Lord of the Rings and some other stuff that he's doing. And one of the things Tolkien says in that letter just absolutely stunned me right into the heart of my bones. And he said, he's talking about the gospel to his son. And he says, he says this. I'll, I'll quote it exactly, and then I'll explain it. He says, man, the storyteller, would have to be redeemed in a manner consonant with his nature by a moving story. In other words, what Tolkien is saying is that it's man's nature to love a story. That's who we are. That's why we go to the movies, by the way. Okay. That's why we love books. That's why we have Kindles. That's why, you know, it's such a big deal to watch a television in our culture. What is it? Why are we drawn into stories about lives that aren't ours? You ever wondered about that? Why do we write stories? Why from the earliest days of a human being's existence, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're connecting with that young child with what? Story. And Tolkien is saying, that's man's nature. And so if that's man's nature, he had to be saved in a way that was consistent with his nature. Okay, that makes sense to us, right? I mean, we have bodies, so if God is going to save us, our Savior has to have a body, right? We are people, creatures who are created, who love stories And not only do we love stories, but we know deep down we were made for a story. And therefore, Tolkien says, when God saves men, it has to be not by any ordinary story, but by a deeply moving story, which is what the gospel is. The gospel is the most moving of all stories. And so think about where we are at the end of the fall. A man has, by his sin, introduced a restlessness into the world. Every relationship that a human being has is marked by restlessness so that everywhere a human being turns, right, his heart is, or her heart is not going to be able to rest, isn't going to find peace, isn't going to find that deep satisfaction. There's always going to be this sense of being out of joint and dislocated. And so how does God respond? Does he walk away from man? No. This is what is so amazing to me about the story of God's grace in the Bible. It is the most moving of stories. And again, if you don't think it is, it's because you're not reading it. 
Can you tell we're getting to the end of the year and I want you to read your Bible next year? What I really want you to do is fall in love with Jesus Christ. And I know that doesn't happen apart from his word. It doesn't. There is no Bible-less way to love the Lord your God. So what does God do? He doesn't abandon man as man had abandoned him. No, no, we... He doesn't yield to man's restlessness. What he does is he speaks into the very rebellion. Um, we've seen this so many times from Genesis 3. God uh, doesn't, he comes immediately and addresses the fall of man, and he promises that in the very heart of that rebellion, he promises that rest is going to be restored through a redeemer, through a seed of the woman, right? He comes in and says, hey, this restlessness is not going to unwrite my story. Sin does not have the power to unwrite my story. In fact, even sin will be my servant now in writing the story, the most moving of stories of all, the gospel of my son. And he promises this seed, this wonderful seed of a woman and we, he gives us glimpses throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes rest is described in terms of the Sabbath. Sometimes rest is described in terms of the land. Sometimes rest is described in terms of a king who will rule the people of God and will grant them peace and protection from their enemies. But very early on, it's clear that the people closest to Adam understood that rest would be a person. Not just a state or a condition, but rest would be a person. That this seed of the woman that God promised in Genesis 3.15 would actually be the rest. And we know that because when Noah is born, his father Lamech calls him Noah. And the word, the name Noah sounds just like the Hebrew word for, guess what? Rest. Nuach. Sounds just like Noah. And Lamech says, when Noah is born, he says at the end of Genesis 5, he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Literally rest. But Noah was, was rest in name only and never lived up to the promise, right? So then, millennia later, Jesus is now standing in front of this crowd in Galilee, as the true Noah, as the greater Noah. And he's standing there, and he says things that are so remarkable. He's saying, I will give you rest. And more than that, he says, I am your rest. You come to me, you'll find rest. Those are things that only God can say in the Old Testament. Only God can say, I will give you rest, and I will be your rest. And Jesus is now claiming these things for himself. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, Tolkien also talks about how what makes every story great, the greatest of stories, all are marked, and if you think about it, I think you'll find this is true, what makes a story great is when there is a sudden turn in that story, a sudden, unexpected, unhoped-for turn in the story 
where deliverance or rescue comes. And Tolkien says it pierces your heart with a joy that brings tears. And he calls it a good catastrophe. Something so massive, so uh, like a bolt out of the blue, and it comes in and it breaks into the story and totally reverses the story. And friends, that's exactly what the gospel is. Think about it, the incarnation. I always want to point over here when I think about the incarnation. I think that's because the advent candle is over there. Sorry, you know, like the manger is over there. Sorry, manger is not over there. But the incarnation, friends, is so unexpected. I mean, here is God coming in, literally stooping down into our lives, taking our nature on and entering our experience, not at the highest point of the earth, but at the lowest point of the earth. And it's just like Tolkien said. He said, when these sudden turns happen, it's like a, like a, 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 a limb that is out of joint has suddenly snapped into place. And you say, yes! Because that's the problem, right? Men had caused uh, the world to fall into sin. Men had introduced restlessness into the world and into the world of men. So it had to be a man who would be the rest bringer, who would bring the rest. And friends, every alienation that we experience, you know, Jesus, although he was right, and he knew he was right before the Lord, what is the story of the crucifixion? I mean, this perfect life that he lived, this perfect incarnate life that he lived, that was itself the embodiment of rest, what did he do with it? Did he keep it to himself? How was he going to fulfill the promises that he makes in verses 28 and 29? To give rest, not just to be rest. You see, he had to be rest, and then for anyone to be saved, he had to give that rest away. See, if you think of Jesus as just your example, this will kill you. It will absolutely kill you. If you think you look at Jesus as an example, you say, well, he was rest, and therefore what the Christian gospel is, is to follow Jesus' teaching so that I might find rest. Oh, how dangerous that is, because it is so close to the truth. And yet it will take you to the farthest orbit away from actual rest imaginable. No, you, you, you can't. No one can. There's only one who could be that rest. And what did he do with it? Well, he carried it to the cross. And he gave it away for us, for sinners like you and like me. And he entered into the deepest part of our restlessness. He entered into, you know what happened? He did two things. He brought, he brought, he br- first he brought the end of our restlessness into the present. The consequences of our rest, he brought into the present in his body on that cross when he was made our sin and was judged in the place of everyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ. He was brought forward and judged there by the holy God so that everyone on planet Earth could look and see that the ultimate end of the restlessness in your hearts 
is God's judgment because of your sin. And unless you embrace the remedy that God has provided in Jesus Christ, you will bear the full consequences of your unrest now. And the full consequences are so grave. So Jesus brought that end into the present, and he also, in this very same place, by being the judgment bearer in our place, brought an end to unrest for any who would trust him. He brought the remedy for our unrest. And as he hung there, friends, think about this. As he hung there on the cross under the judgment of God because he'd identified himself fully with our liability to God, what happened? As he hung there utterly alone, earth had abandoned him. Earth had abandoned him. And heaven, because he had been made sin and was under the judgment of God, it was in the very nature of his experience to even be forsaken by heaven itself so that he is utterly alone in a way that no other person in history has ever been. Utterly alone there between heaven and earth. And what day of the week was it, my friends? It was Friday which in the Jewish calendar was the sixth day. And what were the last words that Jesus uttered from the cross? It is finished. Which were the same words that his father uttered on the, at the end of the sixth day of creation. Jesus is speaking with the same triumph about his work of redemption that the Father declared over his work of creation. And on the seventh day, Jesus lay in the tomb, resting. So that on the first day of the week, the new creation would begin. And God himself said, let there be light. Let there be rest now for any who will come to my son. Friends, what Jesus has done for us is too great to be told in one sermon or in one Christmas but it deserves as this greatest of all deeds to be dwelt upon and thought about. And he deserves your deepest love. He's worthy of your deepest loyalty, of binding yourself to him. You see, what, what is so important to see about the gospel is the order is always God moves toward us. And then in response to God's movement toward us, we move toward him. We do not bind ourselves to Jesus in order to commit him to us. We bind ourselves to Jesus as a response to his completely unsolicited binding of himself to our welfare. That's what we call grace. And so how do you find rest? 
How do you participate in this amazing rest of peace with God, having all these relationships restored now through the work of Jesus? Jesus, who was rest, then in his death and in the power of his resurrection now, the new life of Christ, now he stands as the Lord over all of human history, and now he is giving his rest away to any who will trust in him. Giving it away. But it has to be received from him. You see, if rest is a person, then that means that the way you and I find and experience rest can only be, can only be as the fruit of a relationship with him, right? That makes sense. And so notice how Jesus describes that relationship. It's very surprising in verses 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. That's a picture of the relationship that that he believes will be a rest-providing relationship. And then, perhaps even more surprising, a burden. My burden is light, verse 30. And, And on their face, right, we look at those and we say, that doesn't sound like rest. A yoke that brings freedom? A a, a yoke that provides rest, a burden, a burden. He doesn't just say, hey, you had burdens, and I'll just give you a little thing. He says burden. A burden that's light, a master who provides rest. See, he's asserting that he is the Lord here. Notice the images. He is saying, take my yoke upon you. What's the picture? Is that we are voluntarily serving him as like, an, like a beast of burden in a sense. We're utterly submitting to his authority and we're bearing a burden for him. He's saying, I'm the master. The point of both of these images is the same. Rest is only possible, friends, when we relate to him, when we submit to him, and when we serve him as our master and as our Lord. If you think that you can find rest by just sort of knowing Jesus as your Savior, you will never know deep rest. See, one of the things I think is so interesting about these verses is that when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, and when he says my yoke and my burden, what he's saying is that rest doesn't come yokelessly. It doesn't come burdenlessly. That's the first thing he's saying. And the second thing he's saying is you're already yoked. You're already bearing uh, some burdens. See, there's nobody who is not yoked to some master, Jesus is saying. We've already yoked ourselves to some master or masters, and we're learning from them. There's a voice of authority that we've turned to in our lives to tell us who we are, our identity, to tell us what and how we can matter. That's our dignity. And to tell us how we can be safe. That's our security. And we're, Jesus is saying that what's true about every human being is that that God-sized hole in our hearts, that restlessness in our hearts, we know that we have to have an answer for who we are, whether we matter, and how we can be safe. And so what we do, we cannot live without those. And so what we do is we try to fill our hearts. We spend our lives trying to fill our hearts 
with the latest thing that we think is going to do it. And none of them ever will. And so we yoke ourselves to our job, or we yoke ourselves to not being single, or we yoke ourselves to money, or we yoke ourselves to uh, sexual freedom, or we yoke ourselves to our kids, or we yoke ourselves to our retirement, or we yoke ourselves to our own sense of our spiritual progress. We yoke ourselves to the office we hold. We yoke ourselves to the, the way our kids are doing. And we're learning from those masters. We're saying, yes, this is how I find identity. This is how I find significance. By bearing those burdens and by yoking myself to them as my master and listening to what they tell me about how I can matter and who I am and how I can be safe. And Jesus says, not a single one of them will ever answer the longing of your heart. They are cruel masters. They are imposter Noahs. And so what he's calling us to do, friends, is to leave when he says, come to me, when he says, take my yoke upon you, when he says, learn from me. He's saying, leave those powerless masters who can never give you a stable identity, who can never tell you why you matter, who can never give you the security of a love that will never be forsaken. You know, when I was practicing law, I worked for a really good firm, and people were really nice, but I knew, I knew that their love for me was only as deep as my last victory. And you know it's true. Is there a place in the universe for failures? For people who aren't strong, for people who have not triumphed, is there a place in the universe for people who have not succeeded? For people who in the eyes of the world are nothing? There is. You know what that place is called? It's called the throne of God. It's called discipleship under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who will give you rest. So leave the impersonators and cleave to me. Come to me in conversion. Come to me in committing your life to me. Come to me in discipleship. Keep leaving those other masters because we drift back. We constantly drift back, don't we? And so we have to keep cleaving. We have to keep taking Jesus' yoke upon us. We have to keep learning from him. We have to keep carrying the burden of what it means uh, to be a steward of the gospel. And I know that when you hear these images, yoke, and burden, you think, that is crazy. That, I mean, you you know, this sounds like a paradox, Francis. It sounds like a self-contradiction. Oh, there you go again. But friends, let let me submit this to you. I've thought a lot about this. And this is, this is the best I can do about that tension. The only reason that I think there's a contradiction, that, w- that we, the only reason we think when we hear yoke and burden and we hear yoke that's easy, a master who gives us rest and a burden that's light, the only reason we think when we hear those images that we think there's a contradiction there is because we still think in deep parts of our heart the way that sin has taught us to think. 
See, we still believe the propaganda. It's the same lie that worked with Adam and Eve, right? If you worship God, he will diminish you. If you give your life away to God, he'll never give it back to you. If you serve him, you'll never be free. But the gospel clears our vision. That cross clears our vision. And what we discover there, right, is that Jesus Christ is a master who is worthy of our whole lives because he laid down his entire life for us. He laid down his divine glory for us, so much infinitely larger than the human glory he wants us to lay down for him. And friends, how could we ever think, how could we ever even imagine that being yoked to one like that, that being yoked to a king who is willing to yoke himself, not just to our nature and not just to a large part of our experience, but to our darkness, that we might enjoy light, How could we ever think that to be totally yoked to him, that to put ourselves voluntarily in submission to him, to give our whole lives in service of him, how could we ever even imagine that that kind of yoke would be anything other than true liberty, true joy, true rest? How could it be? If there is anything in us that remains skeptical about that, it's because we are not knowing him as he really is. That is not the truth speaking to us. That is sin talking to us. And how could we ever even imagine that bearing the burden of a Lord like that, of a master like that, who carried our burden in his body all the way to that tree, For us, how could we ever for one nanosecond imagine that the burden of such a Lord who was so willingly, freely, fully, completely burdened on our behalf, how could we ever imagine that that burden of serving him and loving him wouldn't be light? If we think about it for a second, even in that direction, It's because it's not the truth talking to us. We're listening to sin. Friends, Jesus makes the same promise to Christians and to non-Christians this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is easy is light. In the beginning was the rest, and the rest was with God, and the rest was God. Regardless of whether you come for the first or the five millionth time to him this morning, he will never fail you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you, because the rest became flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know us. We know that even in our clearest thinking, we are just able to touch the outermost fringes of what is true about the greatness of your Son. And so would you take the small seed of our time together this morning and would you cause it to find good soil 
And would you multiply it in our lives and through our lives for the glory of your Son, 30, 60, and 100-fold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.